Let's continue with question 33. Was ist Adoption? And we had just talked about what the father does in adoption, what the son does, and what the spirit does. Uh, each for us and all three persons of the Trinity are involved uh, in our adoption as sons and daughters of God. So, flip to Revelation 3 a minute. Which, you know, Alex, it's not Revelations, it's Revelation. And those aren't two different books of the Bible. I heard you telling someone that the other day. I like Revelation, but I like Revelations better. I'm always listening. Alright, so verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is not just a legal technicality. You know, you might imagine sometimes someone might legally adopt even someone who's a grown adult for legal reasons or as a gesture, but it doesn't have any real impact on who they are or their lives uh, in this case, that is not the case at all. This is a new name, a new identity, and a return to the intended nature that we would have. So when we become the children of God, once again, we are now uh, bought with the blood of Jesus, new creatures. Uh, we have a new name, we have a new identity, we have a new father uh, Jesus says, in fact, there in Revelation, uh, behold, I make all things new. And this is a big part of that. I think adoption is probably one of the most underplayed doctrines in Christian theology. It's so important for us to think about in our sanctification and our justification. It's almost like the, the, the step between the two, um, logically, that, that gets us there every time. Because if this justification wasn't just a get-out-of-jail-free, but a change to my identity and my father, where I come from and where I'm going, then, as we're going to get to in a moment, it's going to change my life. I'm going to start looking like the new dad uh, and less like the old. Uh, so what are the privileges of adoption? And again, yeah, we're getting uh, kind of deeper into this inception rabbit hole. What are the benefits of this thing, what are the privileges of all of those, and then we're going to get to another question like that in a minute. But I want to read to you from the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, which says in chapter 12 of adoption, all those that are justified, God vouchsafes in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number, and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, and that's capital S, the Holy Spirit, called the spirit of adoption in Scripture. Uh, that's in uh, Romans 8. Uh, have access to the throne of God with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father. 
yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. So that's all we get. Um, that's pretty incredible. I, I, that seems like something where, I mean, it'd have to be a little bit nerdy, but you could read that every morning to kind of remind you who you are and, and what, what your life ought to look like as someone who's been adopted, justified, vouchsafed, uh, pitied, protected, provided for, all the things that a good father does, our better father, our perfect heavenly father does perfectly. Uh, and and gives, giving liberties and privileges, not, not being, you know, tyrannical and, and scary. And, of course, we talked last week about having this free access, this bold access to the throne of grace and are able to cry, Abba, Father, uh, which is a very familiar term of affection that a, a child would, would uh, use when talking to his or her father. And, and you know, you, you have such bold access, and we get used to that. I think a lot of us who are raised in the church, we've always been told, you know, pray these cutesy little rhyming prayers. God wants to hear from you. God's very fuzzy, and, and we have to be reminded of the holiness of God, to be reminded of what the miracle is here, that we have such bold access to him. Uh, I think a good illustration is thinking about the security around the White House, right? You've got, you know, a perimeter with all sorts of seismic uh, devices, and you've got guys with guns, you've got gun towers, you've got vaults underground. I mean, if you try to storm the White House, you don't get very far. I've never done it, but it you know, happens every once in a while on the news. Somebody, some loony guy, will be like, talk to Barack Obama, or you know, whatever, just run, and they're like, nope. But if there is a child who needs access to the president, and it's the president's child, you know, there, there's these stories of John F. Kennedy. He'd be talking to, you know, some foreign head of state. And his son, his little son, would come and tug on his pants. And he'd just be like, hold on a second. What do you need? And, and kind of get down on his level. Like the, the, this notion that our God is mighty, eternal, holy, unapproachable by anyone who is um, not reckoned perfectly righteous and yet to us, we can walk right into his presence. What a humongous honor. And yet we're like, ah, I was too tired this morning. Yeah, 10 more minutes of sleep. I'll go into the presence of the perfect almighty God of the universe tomorrow, maybe. It, it, to me, this doctrine, it, it's, a, it's a hinge for real piety, I think. And, and, and remembering it, reminding ourselves of it, is absolutely a... Uh, vital part of, of not just having these things be doctrines that are kind of disconnected from life, that are important to have all your ducks in a row theologically, but compel us uh, to, to walk worthy. Did somebody say something? Oh, somebody said something out there. All right, never mind. So that's the difference between justification and adoption. So, I mean, you, you think about a president being unapproachable, I, I know people who have shaken hands with George W. Bush and with Bill Clinton, and they did not burst into flames in his presence, either of them. They could stand in his presence, but they couldn't enter his presence whenever they wanted. Like Ed Dobson went and met with, with Clinton uh, as kind of a group of, of pastors twice, but he couldn't just be like, well, now that I know him, 
Get me the president. It's Ed Dobson, right? I mean, you, you don't suddenly have access. And, you know, justification says that if we're somehow entered into God's presence, we can stand there. Like the Old Testament priest could stand in God's presence, but he could only do that once a year, right? He could only do that when he was actually permitted into his presence. Adoption says we have ready access. That's the difference. One says, come on in. The other says, when you do, you aren't burnt to a crisp. Uh, and you know, you kind of we could get into stuff from Esther and all this kind of thing, but I think I think we're there. That's adoption. Thoughts on adoption? Having talked about that for a couple of weeks here, kind of makes adoption, human adoption, seem that much more beautiful, doesn't it? When you think about how this is one of the most beautiful doctrines. Well, let's move on to question thirty-four. What is sanctification? Answer. Sanctification is the work of God's spirit, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. That is such a spectacular definition. An old-timey sermon illustration. Two or three years before John Newton's death. Was that a sarcastic yes? Oh, good. All right. I like where your head's at. Two or three years before John Newton's, y'all know who John Newton was. Uh, horrible guy, slave trader, as wicked as they come, saved, wrote Amazing Grace. Uh, before his death, when his sight was become so dim that he was no longer able to read, an aged friend and brother in the ministry called on him to breakfast. Family prayers following, the portion of scripture for the day was read to him. By the grace of God, I am what I am. It was Newton's custom on these occasions to use a Popeye voice. I'm kidding. I'm sorry. Again, not nothing. It was Newton's custom on these occasions to make a short, familiar exposition on the passage read. After the reading of this text, he paused for some moments and then uttered the following affecting soliloquy. I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil, and I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon, I shall put off mortality, and with mortality, all sin and imperfection. Yet, though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. And I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let us pray. And then he led them in prayer. That is, to me, a refreshing thing. When you think about what Newton was most known for, things like Amazing Grace, you know, people say, oh, wait a minute, well, why is it called wretches? Uh, because we're wretches until we're saved. And even then, the wretch comes out. Um, Newton, whose most famous quote is, uh, in fact, I just quoted it at Denny's funeral on Thursday. Uh, in my life, I've learned two things. One, that I am a great sinner. Two, that Christ is a great savior. He's always talking about the depth of his sin. And when you see where he came from, you know, actually selling people or uh, transporting them anyway for sale, at human beings made in God's image, I mean, you don't get much lower than that. And yet, even though he was so aware of his sin and his shortcomings and the fact that he still had so far to go, he, he's able to say, yeah, I'm not perfect yet, but it's by God's grace that I am 
this way, now, in this moment. He's aware of the sanctification. And I think that's important because when we're not aware of it and we feel like there's no progress, it can be like, you know, when you're feeling no progress in saving money, and so you stop. Or you're feeling no progress in losing weight, and so you're like, eh, bean burrito tonight and chalupa and a jolt cola, which I almost bought this past week for old time's sake, and it has like 487 calories or something. So he was aware of the sanctification happening. And, you know, when he thinks about what he wishes he was and he hopes it was, it kind of burns, but the burning means it's working. Like that old shampoo. What shampoo was that? Nair? No. <laughs> but that's a good prank, to put Nair in a shampoo bottle. It was it was Destin. Yeah, it wasn't head and sh- yes, yes. All right. Neither here nor there. So the order of things then of course is justification, adoption, and that's not chronological, it's more uh, logical, and then sanctification. And of course we talked about the effectual call being a work, justification being an act of God, adoption being an act of God. Boom, you're my son, my daughter. Sanctification is the the work of God's Spirit whereby. So yes, a work, and it's a work of the Spirit. Alex and I went to a conference a couple years ago where we, it was all about the Holy Spirit and the church. And the one I was most excited for was the Holy Spirit and sanctification, and then I overslept, and we missed it. And I still haven't gone back and listened to it online, even though it's available for free. so. (laughs) Um, So I could be more informed and more eloquent this morning, but instead we'll just go with the the Westminster Divines and Spurgeon. Uh, So the word sanctified, this is corny, and I came up with it myself, maybe should be sanctified based on... (laughs) (laughs) Based on the Greek word that's used here. Because what's the Greek word for saints... That's Latin, but I like where you're going, too. Hagioi. And that just means holy ones. Holies. You, you would know it because you used a Greek flashcard. Um, yeah, that was in like 2000. So, yeah. Um, holy ones. is When you see saints, it just means, in fact, it doesn't even say holy ones. It's just that adjective, plural, holies. And you fill in the ones like you would um, uh, when you're like normies or whatever. So, the holies are the saints. And so you take the hagios, hagios means holy, and this word is hagiazo, to sanctify, to holify. It's the verbal form of holy, uh, to make holy. What is holy, guys? Set apart. Set apart, absolutely, separated. You are more biblically informed than the professor I had for principles of wellness twice in college, um, who said both times. Holy means whole. So if you want to be holy, you have to have your spirit, mind, and body all in good shape. Can you say again what the Greek word for sanctified means literally? To make holy. It's, it's, or just to holy. Or Aaron, I had this funny little thing that was <laughs> to sanctify instead of sanctify. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I want to make it a thing. <laughs> I 
You know, when I put these online, I always give them a little name. That's the name. In honor of you, Sam, your sharp tongue. In, in parentheses after where you say, it should have gotten up, or it should have gotten up earlier, or it should have gone to the conference. You know, like a song that has like a title and then the... Moving forward, this is the inward spiritual renewal of the nature and dispositions which results in outward reformation of life and conduct. Which sounds very like... But I'm going to read it again because this is good. The inward spiritual renewal of the nature and dispositions which results in outward reformation of life and conduct. And if I had gotten up earlier this very morning, I would have a whiteboard and I would make two columns and we would list justification and sanctification separately in these two columns and compare them side by side. Results in the outward what? Yeah. Inward, spiritual renewal of the nature and dispositions, which results in outward reformation of life and conduct. So often, you know, outward reformation is presented as sanctification. People think to themselves, or I'm sorry, as justification. People think to themselves, I'm going to go get right with God by turning over a new leaf, starting to attend church, cleaning up my life, being kind, uh, giving money to charity, all these things that if you just do them in order to be right with God have no power at all, they're filthy rags. But once you're right with God, you will start doing the holy stuff because there is a change in your nature which eventually starts coming out in your life, your conduct. So in our imaginary whiteboard, on the left, justification, on the right, sanctification. On the left, we would write under justification, we are declared righteous. And it's important that justification is declarative. It's not a slow, painstaking process by which we claw our way out of the slimy pit. It's called a miry or slimy pit because you can't climb out of it. If you ever watched Nickelodeon in the late 80s, early 90s, you know it's hard to deal with that slime. You can't get traction. There's no, you know, uh, what do you call that? Friction. friction. There's friction. It's a frictionless pit. You got to be lifted out. And, and that's being declared righteous. God takes us out. He washes us, washes the slime, the filth of our best works and worst sins off of us. In sanctification, then, we are, take a stab at it. Becoming. That's good. I, I was going to say made holy, but becoming holy may even be better. Because it emphasizes kind of the, the slow and gradual and consistent, often, almost always, people will say their sanctification is slower than they want, right? I don't know many people who are like, oh, I'm happy with it. We're on the track. People who, who say that probably don't get it, right? Or they, they should ask someone else in their life, how's the old sanctification going? So declared, right, declared righteous or made holy. Um, justification. God imputes the righteousness of Christ. And remember we said imputing is key to understanding what justification is. Justification is key to the Reformation understanding of what it means to be saved. So all of that comes down to imputation to, uh, to have credited to you another's righteousness. 
And the way that happened is in the great exchange where credited to Christ, the perfectly righteous, was all your sin and mine. Bad deal for him, good deal for us. So God imputes the righteousness of Christ. In the sanctification, the Holy Spirit infuses grace and enables its exercise. The Holy Spirit infuses grace and enables its exercise. Aaron, do you see how if I had the whiteboard, I'd be writing it down and then you could just copy it down and how ideal that would be? It would be great. Well, I don't have it. There's one right in that hallway, but it would take a minute. And it no, may not be no worth. I can write my own columns. It's okay. Well, at least put this out. That'll help. What asked you to do? Now you know where to picture it. How does anything even stand on that? I don't know. That's really. I don't think it's that kind of. It's a that's a low quality easel. I don't know where that even came from. It just stands there. <laughs> All right. Thoughts on that? I mean, God, God imputing the righteousness. Boom. A an act. The Holy Spirit, and that's important because you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So it's always there, always working, infusing grace. And we say, hold on, I thought that the grace was the thing that saved it. Well, no, grace is any unmerited favor. So the saving grace is something that happens to you, imputed. The sanctifying grace is something that you're there for it, right? And so this kind of slow, infusing, and enabling you. And maybe part of the reason it's slow is because it's a shock to our old system to, to become righteous. You know, one of those things where if you try to do it all at once, you'd explode. But this kind of infusing and enabling and becoming more and more righteous. And people can then watch that process. So it becomes part of testimony and part of people seeing that there's something to this, and when they then come to faith, remembering, oh yeah, Sean wasn't perfectly righteous on day one or day two or year 10. This is a slow thing. And sometimes there are steps backward and then more steps forward, but seeing the Holy Spirit at work is is good. Um, Justification changes a person's state. Or we could even say a person's standing before God. Sanctification changes a person's um, Don't overthink it. Heart? No. <laughs> Should have thought a little bit more. Yeah, don't underthink it either. <laughs> actions? Yeah, okay. Actions. Uh deeds, I would just say life, changes a person's life. So it's it's easy to mimic the sanctification, right? Just like, I mean, it, it's easy to make it look like, just like today, it's easy to look smart if you read enough Wikipedia articles in the midst of a debate real quick, but you don't really have the knowledge. It's easy to look like your life is very holy without having a changed heart, a changed state where you're standing before God as in fact, that's what Jesus freaked out on the Pharisees about. Your hearts are so far from me, but your lips are saying all the right things. And you're, you know, you're often doing the right things. You're wearing the right things. It, you look, your, your conduct even sometimes seems holy, but your heart's way far away from me. So justification changes a person's state. We, we rest on that, right, when we fail in sanctification. I'm still righteous in God's sight. But we must also remember that because I'm righteous in God's sight, 
I am being sexual. In fact, it's been said that, and this may this is oversimplistic, but Christianity, the Christian walk, is like more of a Christian bike ride. If you're not moving forward, you're falling down. And so we want to we want to keep moving forward, but always remembering that my standing in God's eyes is not based on whether I'm moving forward or how fast. It's based on the shed blood of Jesus, which is imputed to me the righteousness by grace through faith. Justification, sin is pardoned so that guilt is removed. Sin is pardoned so that guilt is removed. That's, I think that uh, the, the greatest song about justification is Rock of Ages. Sin is pardoned so that guilt is removed. Again, that is just such a comfort, right? The, the idea that the guilt of my sin is washed away. Satan's whole deal, his whole strategy, dealing with believers, is to be like, look, no, the guilt's still there. The sin is still, the sin is still you. You're not adopted. You're still my kid. Like father, like son, you're absolutely still filthy. That's been his gag since the very, very, very beginning. Every time we see Satan, even in the Old Testament, when he's in the courtroom of God, that's what he's doing. So justification is the antidote to that. No. I don't, when, when I hear Satan whisper, you are still filthy, you have no business in God's presence, I don't say, uh-uh-uh, look at my sanctification, because then I'm building his case for him, right? <laughs> he can go, that's slow, that's, you know, some of that's selfish. It's, no, I point back to, my sin is pardoned. In fact, there's that great Martin Luther quote from one of his sermons. It was in the movie, and I finally tracked it down to what sermon it was from and confirmed it was real. He says, when the devil throws your sin in your face and tells you that you deserve hell, say to him, what of it? I know one who has suffered and made atonement in my place. His name is Jesus, and where he is, I will also be. So you, you, what Martin Luther needed to recognize so that he, he could sleep, so that he wouldn't be up all night arguing with the devil in his cell in the monastery was, it's not based on how good a job I do. That, that my salvation rests and that my my doubts are laid aside. It's based on how perfect the Savior died for me. And so his his father confessor uh, would come in and, and point him, give him his, his crucifix and say, look to the wounds of Christ. Don't look at yourself. Good grief. Your sins are boring, but they're still sins, and there's still many. He would always complain. Don't come back so frequently for confession. Your sins are so boring. Do something interesting at least. But he'd say, don't look at yourself. Look at the wounds of Christ and say, I'm yours, Jesus. Save me. And, and, you know, so you go, even within what we think of as this very corrupt medieval Catholic church, there were priests who weren't like, let's get money for the Vatican. There were people saying, no, look at Jesus. That's where salvation is. And so certainly as people in the Reformation tradition, that should be what we do. But in sanctification, sin is subdued. No longer exercising supreme control. And I didn't write this. I don't think. I don't know. It was on my notes from 2006 or whenever I did this before. Uh, but sin, we don't even say slowly scrubbed away. Ultimately, that is the goal. You're moving on beyond. But, but the removal of it, we associate with glorification. The process of sanctification is sin being subdued. In fact, we talk about, uh, put to death, really. It's, it, we talk about uh, punishing the body, uh, the, the, the uh, sin nature or the flesh uh, being mortified, 
and sin is subdued so that it's not at the driver's seat anymore. Now, does it sometimes check us out with, with by the hip and take over? Yeah. Do we often say, you know, sin nature, take the wheel? Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But sanctification is the process by which our sin is subdued so that it is no longer exercising supreme control. That it's not the appetites of the flesh that are that are driving us forward and determining the direction and the destination, it's now the spirit within us infusing us with grace and enabling its exercise. So sin is subdued no longer. Did you got it, Aaron? All right. Two more. Justification. All believers are equally freed from the wrath of God. No one is more justified than someone else. Again, because it's an act, it's done or it's not. So John Piper is not more justified than Zach Bartles. It's not the case. Uh, it couldn't be, because if it was, then the justification wouldn't be what we've been talking about. Just Sanctification, rather, varies by degrees. John Piper is more sanctified than Zach Bartles. So when we start comparing each other, it, that can be good. Paul does say, emulate me as I emulate Christ can be good as long as it's not out of rivalry or jealousy or something to put your eyes on someone and say, you know, that person can mentor me or I can learn from that person how to more closely follow Jesus. But remember, you're not comparing how justified you are. And even though, you know, part of salvation is sanctification, I mean, I guess we should unpack that at some point, um, you're not comparing how saved you are. Once for all, the blood of Jesus equally pardons and frees all from wrath, all believers, everyone who's put faith in Jesus. And then finally, justification is perfect in this life. Perfect. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing will be added to it. When you die and you stand in God's presence, he's not going to say, ah, there, I just finished your justification. So look at you and say, I see the righteousness of Christ. That, because that's your state. That's your standing. Sanctification is not perfect, but growing toward perfection. Who can get to Romans 7 quickest? It's after Acts. It's before 1 Corinthians. It's after Romans 6 and before Romans 8. I'm there. Anybody else? Two verses. First, verse 18. 7, 18, and 23. Well, if it is good enough for Jesus, let's hear it. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me. What? Or but how to perform that which is good, I find not. Okay. Somebody else wonder. Here, I'll read it for you in English. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Anybody relate to that? Okay, yeah. <laughs> Um, 23. Someone read 23. In fact, scratch that. Someone read 21 through 25. Oh. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So there's a war going on 
uh, justification, the war is over before it starts. It's like if we had a war with Canada or something. Uh, sanctification, it's ongoing through your life until it is finally won completely. Now, now the war is over in the sense that D-Day has happened, right? Uh, and the tide has turned, and the outcome is absolutely certain. In fact, I believe it was Petra who said, this means war, and the battle's still raging. War, yes, and both sides are waging. The victor is sure, and the victory is secure. But till judgment we all must adore. Remember that? Petra, 80s hair metal for Christians? You guys, I feel bad for you. Um, the war is it's on still, but it is it's decided. In sanctification, we continually do win battles. Now, there were battles lost after decisive turning points in wars in every one of them. But ultimately, the, the side that was going to prevail did. Uh, and of course, Satan knows he's going to lose. He's read the end of the Bible too. All he's trying to do is drag as many people with him and be as much of a jerk as possible until that day. So, yes, it's a, an act, not a work. It's done little by little. Flip over to 1 Thessalonians 4.1 or write down 1 Thessalonians 4.1 while I flip. It's just one little verse. Here it is. Anyone else have it? Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And so I think that that encouragement in sanctification is the most common way that sanctification is dealt with. I see progress more. Just keep, just keep on doing what you're doing, but do it more. Uh, and so where it, perhaps that's the best way for us to approach our own too. It's easy to look at your life and go, oh, I see all the stuff I need to do less. And yeah, you need to mortify the flesh and we need to confess the sin and we need to uh, you know, overcome it and, and more to, you know, do all that. But where the spirit is at work and we're being enabled and infused with grace and exercising it, do it more. You know, we have this initial momentum that we can continue to, to draw on. Uh, but we're never done. And, and this is a distinction, by the way. We're reading a Baptist uh, catechism based on a Presbyterian catechism. If this was a Methodist catechism, it wouldn't say this is never done in this life. It would say, yeah, you hit some perfect love at some point, perfect holiness. The holiness tradition says if you're not getting there at some point, something's wrong. Or you just don't sin. I don't know these people. Uh, I've never met one of them who's truly perfectly holy. Uh, it's, it's, you know, I've got a nose for my own. I can tell right away that you're a sinner, but, uh, we, we believe that he's still working on me as the song says that, you know, that children's song, you didn't know the Petra song, you know, the children, Petra actually did a cover of that. No, no, they didn't. Um, so we don't want to think, yes, I'm going to get there and I ought to get there quick. And so I'll get disappointed and frustrated if I don't arrive. Walking with Jesus, it is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Running with Jesus, I guess. You don't, and people walk marathons. Okay, we're walking a marathon. And so you see, I mean, I got to imagine, no surprise I've never run a marathon or walked a marathon or a half marathon, but you got to think that when you get to like mile 11, you're like, whoa, I'm still not half done. 
And that's often the case when you're in your sanctification. You're like, I'm nowhere near where I need to be. That's fine. Day by day, we walk with him. And it's important to look back at where you were five years ago and where you are now. It's important to look back at where you were two months ago and where you are now. And where you need to confess and redouble your, your uh, conviction, your commitment, do it. And where you can say, oh, God, wow, I didn't even notice because it was so slow. But give him all the glory and all the credit for it. We also don't want the opposite error where we, we don't expect to arrive right away. But, you know, we're expecting sin to continue total dominion over us because, hey, I'm only human. And after all, we're in the Reformation tradition, so it's grace and faith, and it's not based on what I do. Read James to give you that little kick in the pants, that epistle of straw, right? Uh, Luther didn't even like it because it, it, it bristled against his, his emphasis on faith. It said, if your faith is real faith, you're going to actually see some deeds, some works. Um, quarter after... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so what exactly is God doing here? The Second London Baptist Confession, which is really the only statement of faith on our website, um, it says in 13.1, the lusts of the flesh are more and more weakened and mortified. Mortified means kilt. And they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces, they being the believers, to the grace of all true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. And I can hear certain people on Twitter uh, in the uber-reformed R. Scott Clark camp going, Hey! Without, without which no one will see the Lord. No, 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 no. You're falling into Roman Catholic error. No, we're falling into biblical doctrine. Uh, right backwards into it. Lusts of the flesh are more and more weakened and mortified, and they, the believers, more and more quickened, mean made alive, and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of all true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Um, somebody had flipped to Philippians 2.12, and somebody else to, yeah, Philip to Philippians, someone else to 2 Peter 1.10, and then whoever goes to 2 Peter 1.10, keep that open. 2.12. Yeesh. I got the first one. Let's hear Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's one of those passages that Calvinists like me tremble when we think of, right? What does it mean? Work out your own salvation? With fear and trembling, we just talked about how we can walk boldly right into God's presence to the throne of grace, where his kids were saying, Abba, and now we're being told, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Let's hear 2 Peter 1.10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Is that... That's not the ESV, is it? It is indeed. Second Peter, right? Yeah, no, that's, that's the right verse. Okay. I guess I'm thinking of the NIV that says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. To confirm. Okay, interesting. Yeah, that probably is more, um, a little bit clearer. For if you 
practice these qualities, you will never fall. So both of those passages almost seem to push back against the notion that justification is the done deal and we we don't play any role and sanctification is just this natural outpouring of it and it's going to be slow and don't put all your eggs in the basket of your sanctification move them back to your justification so what do we do with this working out salvation is the work of god's free grace i mean what somebody suss this out for me who's thought through this passage what you mean by working out I didn't write it. <laughs> what do you mean by that? You know, because that might be like living out through works, or it might be like I'm working on this particular part of it. Like I'm working on the salvation part versus I'm saved, and therefore I'm working out the works part. Okay. Yeah, would that mean like living out your salvation by the fruit in your life or something? Yeah. Well, because, second, oh, sorry. The second part of that verse, verse 13, talks about it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, I mean, even though you're working out your own salvation, it's him who's working in you. Ooh, I think we have hit the, uh, the key point here. Can you, can you read that whole? The whole thing? Yeah. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God who is working in you, even when you will to do good, and when you do the good work, it's God working in you. Um, from a human point of view, it looks like us working out our salvation. It's one of these things, I think you see it from above or you see it from below, and so often when we argue about it, we're just saying, no, my perspective is better, no, mine is better. So I'm not equating these, but here is an analogy that might help, okay? Well, this is going to be awesome. No, I just don't want you to think that I'm saying this is the thing. What I mean is it's going to probably be blasphemy. Go ahead. No, it's not. Um, so to me, the way to understand this is I grew up in Lutheran church. I was baptized. I was not part of that choice. So that could be something standing in for God calling and saving someone. Mm -hmm. And then you're confirmed later and you confess that I believe these things and I'm going to live this way. So to me, that's a good analogy to how that works. I see why you hedged the beginning of that. Yes, because I didn't want you to I was immediately like, because I'm a jerk. Um, so you're not teaching baptismal regeneration, no. nor are you suggesting no, that, that infants are the proper subject of, or object rather, of baptism. Yeah, no, I think I think that's that's good. So, so people who might belong to one of those traditions who would say, "Man, eh, baptized, I'm a, I'm I'm set, I'm locked in," even in their tradition, they'd be say, "Well, is, did you, are were you confirmed in the faith? If not, don't count on this this ritual." Um, Let's let's have somebody whoever read was that you who read Second Peter one ten Steve, who did it? The mystery. Read one through nine and then ten again, and I want you to listen for the shift from the indicative to the imperative. Indicative is where it tells you stuff that happened in the Bible. Generally, stuff that God did. So the descriptive, the indicative to the imperative, which is the command. 
the prescriptive. And then, yeah, one through ten. One through ten. Simeon, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to su supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Do you hear how much less troublesome that becomes when you look at the context? And you, and you remember the, the New Testament pattern always being indicative is what God did for us in Christ, therefore imperative. Here's how we should live. Here's our response. Or we might say, and this doesn't always suss out exactly this way, but the pattern would be justification. It is finished, therefore sanctification. And that's going to be the, the natural fruit of justification. So... Who then is the agent of sanctification? Who's who's doing it? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, right? Yeah, so Jesus came, and our justification is by the blood of Christ shed for us, and, and the blood in Hebrews 9 offered in the greater tabernacle to, to God, just much like how the, the Old Testament priesthood would offer the blood uh, on the mercy seat. And so there's... The, the son achieving, it is finished all, once for all by his death. And, and our justification also is bound up in his resurrection, uh, uh, raised to new life for our justification. And then he leaves and says, it's better for me to leave because now you've got this thing from me. And I'm going to send the comforter, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, who's going to come and walk with you and, and be within you and compel you and guide you and convict you the rest of the way. And, and that is great. I mean, mobs of people are coming for a little FaceTime with Jesus. He's in one spot at one time. He's like, I'm, I'm going to go, and then the comforter will come. And you'll all have that level of intimacy with God that, like King David had, and those who were for a moment or a time or a task indwelled with the Spirit, filled with the Spirit in the, in the Old Testament. Do you think that... Like traditions that have a, a weak or almost non-existent kind of view of the Holy Spirit, where you don't really hear much about it. But do you think that those are people who are more likely to think, I have to do this all on my own? Yeah. Yeah, for sure, yeah. Um, Francis Chan's book, Forgotten God, is, is about that. American Church is just kind of like made the Holy Spirit more of a mascot than an actual... It's so ironic because he's the one that that's indwelling us now, um, 
and yet we're kind of oh, are those, focusing on the are those the same places that would focus more on like you've made a personal decision and oh yeah, yeah 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 so so making your call on election sure means pedaling harder and going faster and, and working more uh, like did anyone see the the clip on Twitter of the the old timey Baptist preacher who had his tie tied around his forehead and did the cartwheel why why did he keep shouting about how sleep is overrated and we need to do more and more and more yeah probably a very weak uh, doctrine of the Holy Spirit and it's called pneumatology very weak pneumatology and a very strong emphasis on our decision forgetting what John chapter 1 says uh, the final question I leave you with because it's time to go and this is one that uh, Bonaventure asked and, and, and spent many years pondering and that is sanctification more like buying a Bowflex off of TV so that you could get buffed up or is it more like one of those like electric ab things that you, that you put on your pecs and it shock 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 and, and you just sit there and it makes you stronger right did you ever see dragon the bruce lee story great movie uh yeah nice i i knew that you would have seen it jim uh he, he's wearing one of those things and he says uh, a minute is like doing 200 push-ups so which which is which is assuming that worked and, and, and wasn't part of why Bruce Lee died of taking an aspirin. Are you using the Bowflex or did you just buy it? You're using it. Okay. Is it. Is it like buying it? Well, because if you buy the Bowflex, you don't use it, right? You buy it late at night, as Seinfeld said, when you're in your recliner with chip crumbs all over it. Go, I ought to buy that thing and get fit. Is it like buying this thing whereby you yourself can strengthen yourself up? Or is it you just sit there and... Now, don't answer now. I want you to think about it. Let's go to the Lord of Prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these doctrines, the doctrine of adoption, which reminds us we are your sons and daughters and come boldly into your presence. The doctrine of sanctification, which reminds us that you are still working on us, that we, we are not a finished product. And Lord, we pray that we would see progress. That, uh, you would open our eyes to where we have been sanctified, uh, made more holy, and that Lord, you would open our eyes and convict us of sin where we have resisted sanctification and, and where we have uh, intentionally or not seared our consciences against the work of the Spirit, that, Lord, uh, we would pray for a, a renewed sensitivity to the leading of the Spirit and that we would become more and more sure in our calling and election, our effectual calling, that, Lord, we would, we would work out our salvation in fear and trembling, uh, but that, Lord, we would know we belong to you. We, we see in that a theological tension and we don't want to resolve it. We don't want to do away with it. We want to live in it. And we pray, Lord, that you would give each of us the, the ability to do that more and more, that as we think on these things, uh, they would come into focus uh, and we would see you at work and see just how full of grace and mercy you are for each of us. We thank you for the chance to come together and worship uh, in our morning service. And we pray that you would be uh, just powerfully present with us there as well, that we would hear the word and that it would not return void, Lord. We have your promise that it won't, that we would sing your praises and they would come from our hearts and not just from uh, a rote moving of the mouth, but Lord, uh, a moving of our spirits. And we would leave this place that much more like you, having been sanctified uh, even this morning. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.